Okay, well, good to be with you guys uh, today. I, w I hope you know how smart your teacher is. Because what he does, what he does is uh, he sets his class up where other people teach his class. <laughs> and some people would say that's reflective of laziness. I, I call it wisdom. I, I just think he's, he's just really good at that. So, uh, in fact, he had me teach one of his classes uh, over at Lipscomb one time, and, and I found out I was one of about 10 people teaching that too. So he, he does it there, he does it here. So he applies his wisdom everywhere he goes. So uh, he, he's really good at that. So. <laughs> yeah, you do it because you want to learn. Is that right? Yeah. Well, uh, good to be with you guys. When did I do? Is this it's the last year? Yeah, it was last spring. Was it last year? Was anybody in here during that time? I can't remember if anybody was here during that day that we talked about. Um, people who manipulate, uh, people who are, they're, they're <clears throat> these people are called names. Um, you know, when, when children act like children, we call them kids. When adults act like children, we call them names. <laughs> and, and there's a whole bunch of names that we use to call these people. I won't go through those here in Sunday school because that, you know, the, some of them are dirty names. You know, we tend to use terms that, that it reflect our exasperation with these people. We call them things like jerks, creeps, crazy makers. I mean, they just really make you feel crazy. Uh, in our field, we tend to call them uh, personality disorders uh, because there's something, there's just something that's not firing the way it's supposed to. I mean, and they've got a, a relational uh, glitch that, you know, most of us, when we are in close relationships, if you get in close, you're going to have problems with people. Um, your problems tend to come out in the context of close relationships. Um, I tell people sometimes, if you're not sure where you're flawed, get married. <laughs> because, because it's in that context that all of your glitches and your flaws are going to start to show up. Uh, I was doing a seminar not long ago. Somebody raised their hand. They said, have you ever heard the phrase, uh, marriage is like putting miracle grow on your character flaws? <laughs> so uh, that's where they really start to become evident. And what people need to do when they have problems in relationships, they need to do the right things with personal wrongness. But the thing about this population that we're talking about, whatever you want to call them, wolves in sheep's clothing, personality disorders, manipulators, they do the wrong things with personal wrongness, and they lack something that um, hopefully most of us has, and that is the ability to be able to resolve problems in close relationships. They lack those abilities. So what they resort to instead of problem solving is an alternative, and do you know what you call their alternative? Drama. Drama becomes the, the means of relating. Now the way the drama works is my role in our relationship will be this. Your role in our relationship will be that. And as long as we both stay inside of our drama roles, we'll have a good relationship. For instance, let's say you've got somebody who uh, all he knows to do is be in control. And so the drama setup is, in our relationship, I'll be in charge. Uh, you do what I need you to do and be who I need you to be. As long as we both stay inside of our drama roles, we'll have a good relationship. So relational success is contingent upon drama participation. That's just how it works. Now, what we're going to talk about is how do, um, how do these people get people, how do they get others into these drama arrangements? They don't just come at you 
directly and say, here's our setup, I'll be in charge and you're going to submit. They don't do it that way, obviously. But they have a way of snookering you so that uh, before you know it, you have found yourself wrapped up in one of these arrangements. And a lot of times you may feel it before you can observe it. You just know something doesn't feel right. You just have some kind of sense. This is just not this. Um, my guts are telling me something does not line up the way it should here. So um, what I want to talk to you about uh, today are three vulnerabilities that uh, manipulators can exploit. And these are things that are true of all of us. They're true of you. They're true of me. All of us are exploitable in these ways. And I think by um, increasing our awareness of how we're vulnerable, we're less vulnerable. So it really helps to be able to understand uh, how they get to us. Um, so let, you, you, everybody got the handout? Uh, what, what I've got on the, that first page is there's three things that we're going to look at. Now one, one thing that they can exploit are some naive expectations. Now. What you see on that first page, these are just some, uh, and by the way, Terry, when do we stop? Uh, 10.45. 10.45, okay, I'll make another. Um, what they can do, and, and by the way, if we get some time, what I'd like to do is, is have a little bit of time for questions. So as, as we're going through this, if you got some questions, uh, be, be making note of those, and we'll try to close that way today. But um, what they, most of us <clears throat> grow up with some culturally embedded maxims that define how we are supposed to be in relationships. And these maxims that we are taught work really well in relationships with normally wired people. They just don't work with manipulators. And if you try to use these maxims with manipulators, then you become exploitable. And a lot of people don't know that there's a distinction between the two. So uh, first one of these is give people the benefit of the doubt. Okay, isn't that a great way to relate to people. We, we're in this relationship where we give each other the benefit of the doubt, but if you do that with a manipulator, they will exploit your good graces, obviously, won't they? If you give the benefit of the doubt to somebody who hasn't earned it or doesn't deserve it, then you become exploitable. Um, don't think badly of people. And you heard that. I've got a lady that um, I've seen in my office uh, in private practice for about 15 years. Now, when I say I've seen her for 15 years, what I mean by that is that she'll come in for a series of uh, eight to ten sessions. And uh, then I might not see her again for three or four years. Uh, then she comes back. I see her for another few sessions. Then she comes back. So the number of times I've seen her over those 15 years is not that many, really. But every time I've come in, she's come in to see me, there's been one uh, subject that we have discussed and that is her relationship with her nasty, narcissistic husband. <laughs> now, I know some nice narcissists. Uh, they're pleasant people. There are some nasty narcissists. Um, there was a point, I met him, and there was a point where uh, I had him see one of my office mates, and the, the consensus is, yeah, he's a nasty narcissist. And I can't tell you, she, she is, one of the nicest people I think I've ever met. She's just a genuinely decent, nice, wholesome person. Uh, she has a really good reputation in the community. She's a, she's a mental health professional. And she has a, a little niche that she takes care of. I've sent people to her for that niche many, many times. I always hear back really good reports. And every time I'm, I'm around her, I think, she's just a good person. 
I can't tell you the number of times we'll be sitting in my office and she'll be telling me something about her husband. Of course, he's not there. And she'll stop herself in mid-explanation and say, oh, this is a terrible thing to say about somebody. Well, the thing is, what she's saying is accurate. She feels bad for saying it. And sometimes what people will do is they'll censor themselves at the thought level and they won't even allow themselves to think these negative thoughts. Well, now they become exploitable because you have to be keeping your eyes on those negatives, don't you? Um, treat people like you want to be treated. Okay, great maxim, but you can't expect reciprocal good treatment from a manipulator, can you? Uh, and and if, you, if you expect that, then you're going to become exploited. The last one is try to find the good in everyone. Let, let me ask you, you guys this. Can you find the good in a manipulator? What do you think? Yeah, I, I think it is almost always the case that you can find a good quality, at least one. Now, sometimes what they've done is they've taken that quality, that, that stellar quality, and they've used that to make their lives work. And they use it, the problem is they use it everywhere they go. Um, and it served a really good purpose. For instance, let's say you've got some uh, guy who is a controller. Now, he's in the military, so he uses his controlling this in the military to command his troops. And he uh, wins battles, he gets decorated, and he saves lives. Then he takes his controllingness home with him and uses it at night with his wife and children. How does that work? It doesn't work. So the same quality, depending on the context of where he uses the quality, makes it either a good or a bad quality. And this, this is one reason why these people can be so dead gum confounding. How can they be so wonderful over there and so lousy over here? Well, that's part of the reason. Um, Terry and I both have, uh, we're kind of a fan of this guy named Greg Lester. Greg is another psychologist. He, this is the population that he talks about. And he uses an illustration. And, he, and again, he refers to them as personality disorders. That's more the mental health nomenclature. But he said, he's talking in his seminar about uh, personality disorders. And he says, here, one of the things that um, is wrong with them is what he calls failure of adaptation. And what he means by that is, here, here's what you and I, as normal people, I hope you're normal people. Uh, well, I, I speak for you, I can't speak for me. Um, uh, he says, here's what uh, they're supposed to be able to do. That, that in one setting um, that requires certain traits, you pick up the traits that are appropriate to that setting and you use them there. The next setting requires different traits, so you lay those down, pick up others up. Next one, lay those down, pick up others up. So you've got, you've got this ability to flex and adapt and adjust yourself to the needs of the social environment. That's normal. You're not the same person at a football game as you are at a funeral. You know, you wear different traits depending on the setting, right? Well, he says the problem with a personality disordered person is he's confined to one way to be. And he just bees that everywhere he goes. And as long as there's a match between that way to be and the needs of the social environment, it's a wonderful quality. If there's a mismatch, it's a terrible quality. Now, he illustrates this. And I'm going to tell you his illustration. I'd be willing to bet 
that you won't forget this illustration because I heard him use it about 15 years ago. I've never forgotten it. But he says, we're going to illustrate this adaptation thing from uh, the world of music. Now let's say that normal would be represented by the musician Billy Joel. Now it's kind of a dated illustration. But he says, Billy Joel can go one night and play his music in a college stadium. And he plays the kind of music in that college stadium that just causes the place to come unglued. The next night he plays his music uh, with a symphony orchestra. And all night long he gets polite standing ovation after polite standing ovation. The next night he, he plays his music in the back of a smoke-filled honky-tonk. And he plays the kind of music there that just rocks the house. He says, we're going to call that normal because he can flex and adapt and adjust his music to the needs of the social environment. Now let's contrast that with a personality disorder, and a, a personality disorder is a player piano. Uh, it only plays one tune. Now let's say that the, the player piano can only play the theme from Jaws. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Now take the player piano playing Jaws, put it out into the lobby of a movie theater that has a special showing of the old movie Jaws. So people come out of the movie, they walk into the lobby, they hear this thing playing Jaws, and they go, that is so cool. Whoever thought about that, that was just brilliant. Just enhances the whole environment. But take the player piano playing Jaws to someone's wedding. <laughs> and, and the bride has to come down the aisle to the theme from Jaws. Dun, 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 dun. It just doesn't fit there, or at least you hope it doesn't fit there. Because now there's this mismatch between the tune and the environment. He says, that's a personality disorder. So my point would be to say, if, if you're um, looking for a good trait, it's just about always there to be found. Some of these people, now maybe this trait has um, made them famous. Maybe it's made them wealthy. Maybe it's made them powerful. Um, maybe it's made them the CEO of a corporation. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the book called Snakes in Suits. You ever seen that? It's by, it's by a guy named Robert Hare, H-A-R-E, like the rabbit. And it's a very research-based book, and one of the things they found is what's happened in a lot of the American business community is that corporations are seeking to elevate to these top-level executive positions, sociopaths. Now, they don't advertise it on Craigslist that way. But if you look at the qualities of the people they're elevating, a lot of times they're people who have sociopathic traits. And you know why they do that? Because it improves the bottom line. And so uh, it, they may destroy everybody else in the process of getting there, but that awful trait is, a, is adaptive to that particular situation, and they can excel and make lots of money and be famous. So, um, but that's all they've got. Uh, look at the next one. Attempting to reason with the unreasonable. Now, you know, the old adage is you can't reason with an unreasonable person. You ever heard that? Um, remember Thomas Paine? Remember him? He was one of our founding fathers. And you know how he said that? He said, attempting to reason with a person who has renounced the use of reason is like administering medicine to the dead. <laughs> I love that way of putting it. Uh, Mark Twain said, never argue with a fool. 
onlookers might not be able to tell the difference. <laughs> so, but um, we all do it, don't we? So if you're in a if you're in a relationship with somebody who is being very unreasonable with you, what are you most prone to do? Yeah, reason harder. You know, maybe if I say it louder, maybe if I get up in their face, they'll get it this time. But the whole time you're doing that, they got you. Because what you're doing is exhibiting exasperation. And the exasperation that you exhibit when you fail at it will be used as a way to kind of pull you into the drama. Now, what you see on this page, there's some um, statements that we typically make as attempts to try to engage someone in a reasonable discussion. Now, the first one is, let's sit down together and talk this out. Well, that would work, except that this person lacks a quality called humility, which means I could be wrong, you could be right, let's talk. But what's their stance? Their stance is I'm right, you're wrong, end of discussion. So they're not willing to even entertain the possibility of personal wrongness. And so that's going to fail because they lack the muscle that would make it work. Um, sometimes these people are so deeply um, flawed that they will um, lie in order to avoid being wrong and actually believe their own revisions. They'll alter history and appear to sincerely believe their own revisions. Um, not revealing too much here, but my wife was raised by two very, very disordered people. And she always called them two narcissists. I, you know, narcissism has become one of those terms that's so widely used. I, sometimes I'm not sure what people mean when they say it. It's gotten to the point where if you don't like somebody, you call them a narcissist. It's a sort of a sophisticated term of derision. Um, I think it's probably more accurate to say her dad was really narcissistic. Her mother had a whole different set of issues. But I remember one, one time before I got in this field, my, this is the statement my, my wife made about her dad. She said, my dad has this amazing ability to revise history as he goes along. And what he does is he, he backfills with some kind of altered uh, version of reality and he actually believes the alteration. So he can be so disordered, he was so disordered that he actually believed his own lies. He was capable of deluding himself. And the scary thing was other people believed his lies too. And, and that was even scarier. So he didn't realize he was doing it or he did realize or acknowledge the unrealistic situation? I think um, this is my opinion. Of course, there's really no way to know this because you can't crawl inside somebody's brain. I think he had the ability to do what she said. He revises history as he goes along. Then he sincerely believed his own revisions. And once there's the altered uh, revision, then he believes that and he stops thinking about it. And now that's, that's what actually happened in his, in his mind. So I think he, he was disordered in that way, and a lot of people do. They, they actually believe their own altered version of reality. Anyway, that, that statement's not gonna work because if you sit down and talk about it, you won't get any place. Um, I'll let him know that I see what he's up to. Yeah, Terry. I was just going to add to that. One of the things that we talk about in this field, this population of people, is that they have an inability to what's called uh, observing ego. Yeah. All that means is they, they lack the ability, many times, mostly, to be outside themselves and see themselves from an objective 
uh, standpoint. And that ties in, I believe, with what you're talking about. They can't see it. They don't, to them, reality is what makes their image look good. The narcissist wasn't in love with himself. He was in love with his image. Yeah. It's the right. image that's important. Yeah. Everything serves the image. Yeah. And, and that, I think, ties into what you're saying. Because the yeah. reality doesn't really right. matter. What matters yeah. is supporting, enhancing, and enriching, creating. Right. Yeah. Everything's in service of that. Yeah. I saw a documentary one time on the Kennedy men, and one guy, a family friend, said that he used to hear Joe Kennedy, the, the dad, say to his sons, it's not who you are in life that's important. It's who people think you are that's important. That's a That was a direct teaching in the household that image is more important than reality. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll let him know that I see what he's up to, but the problem is just what Terry just said. Uh, he has limited self-observational abilities, so he doesn't see himself as he really is. So you can point that out, but he doesn't see it, so good luck with that. Um, I'll treat him well, then he'll treat me well. Well, that would work if he had the ability to feel bothered by his own personal wrongness, but he doesn't. And so that's a nice thought. It just doesn't operate that way. Um, I'll set him straight, tell him I just won't take it anymore. Well, the problem is he's empathy deficient. So he, didn't, he doesn't really care about the effect on you. What does he care about? His image. Himself, yeah. So that's kind of narcissistic. Oh, yeah. Selfishness. Yeah, yeah. It's all about what's important to me. So if, if I tell him um, I won't take it anymore, you would think he might be motivated by empathy to make some changes, but he's empathy deficient. So that statement's gonna get you nowhere. Um, I'll confront him and let him know that he's gotta get some help. Well, the problem is his stance is I'll not change because I'm not wrong. So it, it's an, all of these are attempts to engage someone in a reasonable discussion and they're all destined to fail because they lack the internal equipment that would make those things work. Um, uh, I was talking about this to another group one time and somebody <laughs> raised their hand. They said, have you ever heard the statement, uh, never teach a pig to sing. It wastes your time and annoys the pig. <laughs> so uh, it kind of fits in here. All right, and then the last page, here's another place where manipulators are, can, this is another way in which we can be vulnerable to manipulation, which is they are so dead gum confusing. They really mess with your brain. They're very mentally discombobulating. And it's, it's hard to know exactly where the reality is. Um, I was reading something that somebody was said, it wasn't, it wasn't actually an article on manipulation, um, but the guy made this statement about a, a um, kind of a well-known drama person. This is a statement he made. He said, he's like a magnet next to a compass, making it difficult to get accurate bearings. I thought, that is a wonderful word picture. He's like a magnet next to a compass. He throws you off, and so you lose your bearings. Um, Greg Lester, you know, same guy I've been referring to, he says that when you're dealing with these people, 
It's like being in a plane that has no instruments at night in the middle of a cloud. You have no reference point, so you don't know whether you're going up, down, uh, horizontal, upside down, right side up, because you have no reference points. You know, you know they say it's what happened to JFK Jr. Uh, you know, he was, he was in a plane, he didn't know how to use the instruments. He was flying over the Cape, nighttime fell, he lost his reference points and just plunged into the ocean. And um, being around manipulators can be so mentally discombobulating. Now, it's, it's confusing for different reasons, and you've seen some of the bullets there. One is there, there's often this disturbing discrepancy between who they appear to be in public and who they actually are in private. And sometimes the person who's the target of manipulation um, will say to themselves, if everybody else sees them that way and I don't, maybe I'm the crazy one. Maybe it's me. I've got a lady that I've seen for a while in my office. When she first came in, uh, she had just separated from her husband of 20 years who she described as a narcissistic doctor. Now, some people would say that's a redundancy. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't say that. I'm just saying. But uh, this is what she said about him. She said, uh, he is a really slick narcissist. And she said, for years, people have come to me privately, other women have come to me privately, and they have said, you are married to the Renaissance man. He is so kind. He is so caring. He's so loving. And unlike so many men, he's so in touch with his feelings. I'd give anything if my husband had half of the qualities that your husband has. And she said when they would say that to her, she'd be thinking to herself, I must be bat crazy because my experience with him could not be more polar opposite than from what they're describing. And now, as time went by, she started to emerge out of that fog. I'll tell you something that happened. I just think this is fascinating. She said that years ago, when they set up all their technology, like texting and emailing, they just hadn't understood when they set all that up that they could read each other's text and emails. Well, apparently, as time went by, he forgot that. And she had the ability, after they separated, to read everything that he said to everybody else. Uh, she didn't hack into anything. I mean, just there to be read. So she said, for instance, some mornings, she said, he would send me a text, you know, let's say 8.15 in the morning. And in that text, he would say, I just want you to know that even though we're going through this awful divorce, I still really do care about you. So I just wanted you to know that today I'm thinking about you and I'm praying for you. That'd be at 8.15. At 8.16, he would send out a mass text to all of his friends where he would call her every profane name in the book, trash her, throw her under the bus. And she said, here those things were right beside each other. She said, now, for years, I suspected that was the case. Now I could see that's the case. And this is the way she put it. She said, that's been one of the greatest gifts to me, <laughs> just to, to, to verify that I'm not crazy. I used to think I was crazy for even thinking that. Now she could see that it was true. Most people don't get that gift, do they? Um, another one, 
<clears throat> we may feel confused because they stage dramas on some occasions but not on others. So go figure, you know, why do they do that? So you're expecting them to dramatize and they are amazingly, refreshingly normal. And you drop your guard, you say, you know, maybe I've been seeing this wrong. And then you get bushwhacked uh, when the drama shows back up. I'm not, I'm not revealing too much by telling you this, but um, my wife, as I mentioned, was raised by two very disordered people. And uh, th this is back before I was in this field. She used to tell me, she said, I swear it's like they are tag team narcissists. It, she said, I know that's not true, but it's almost like they take turns. Uh, she said, for instance, sometimes she'd come home from college at Thanksgiving, and she'd walk in the door, and Mom would be crazy as a loon, all into her pathology. And over Thanksgiving, she and her dad would huddle with each other and get some support about how to deal with crazy Mom over Thanksgiving. She'd come home at Christmas, walk in the door, expecting to find Dad there, and he'd be crazy as a loon. And she and her mom would kind of huddle with each other over Christmas about how to deal with crazy Dad. Now that, that will mess with your brain. Uh, and it did with hers for many, many years. I mean, it severely impaired her judgment. She married me during that time. But, yeah, so, so, uh, but, uh, maybe, maybe good came from it after all. Yeah, maybe so, maybe so. Um, the next one is he highlights our flaws and calls us hypocrites for criticizing him. Um, you got flaws? Sure. And let's say in a weak moment you have popped off and called that person a name. Guess what? He's not going to forget that. So later he'll say something like, you know, you can get off your holy high horse. Remember what you called me last week? And they are and he's pointing out something that's fact-based. You really did say that. And if it works, he'll set up this false moral equivalence kind of thing, this apples and oranges comparison. You'll think, you know what? He's got a point, but he really doesn't, but he makes, makes you think that he does. The, the nastiest person I've ever had in my office over the years, this is back in the 90s, this guy came in um, with his wanting to come in for marital counseling, one of the nastiest, most duplicitous people I've ever been around in my life. Are you ever around somebody who's like this and you, you just kind of feel their presence? That, that's the way it was when he'd come in my office. I mean, I could almost literally feel a change in the atmosphere. He used to email me late at night and he would say, I don't want my wife to know that I'm emailing you but there are just some things that you need to know. And I would have to write him back and say, I'm seeing the two of you as a couple, and I can't have back-channel clandestine communications with either one of you. So anything that you have to say to me, you have to say in her presence. So when I hit reply to this email, I'm gonna delete your email and I will not read it. And I probably had to do that six or seven times. Well, they would come into my office and he would say something about his wife that was so character assassinating, just nasty. But he would say it in very flowery terms. And I would call him on it and I'd say, sounds to me like what you're saying about your wife is this. And he would say, I don't believe I used those words. 
And I'd say, oh, okay, well, granted, you didn't use those precise words, but that was sure the idea that you communicated. Well, that's just your interpretation. And he had this way of parsing everything that came out of his mouth so that you could never nail him down specifically, and you just wanted to just smack the guy. I still have some emotion about that. Uh, he's dead now. I still have some emotion about that. I didn't kill him. Uh, considered it. Uh, not quite sure that she didn't. Maybe she did kill him. I'm not sure. Um, I was reading something not long ago in an article that had nothing to do with this, but uh, buried in the article, the author made a statement that I liked it so much, I thought about putting, on, putting it on my office wall. But here's a statement he made. I don't know that it's original to him, but he said, the, the most effective lies are the ones that are sprinkled with the most actual truths. The most effective lies are the ones that are sprinkled with the most actual truths. So sometimes what a person can do is they can tell a lie or they can construct a lie using nothing but factual ingredients. And uh, you call them on it and they say, hey, I'm just telling you the facts. And they are just telling you the facts, but they've arranged the facts together in such a way that it has created a falsehood. I'll tell you something that happened to me. This, this, back in the summer of 1997, uh, true story, um, here in Nashville, early one morning, I went downtown and a man with a mask knocked me out, slit my throat, and took my money. That, that actually happened to me in the summer of 1997. Now, I can tell by looking at your faces, you probably think I just told you the story of a mugging. You know what I actually just told you the story of? Surgery. Neck surgery. I had a disc that had come out of place, and they had to go in and repair that. So let me tell you that to you again. Early one morning, I went downtown, and a man with a mask knocked me out, slit my throat, and took my money. <laughs> so I told you exactly the same facts both times. The first time I lied to you. The second time I told you the truth. Now, I'm uncomfortable doing that as an illustration for a few seconds. Manipulators are great at that. They can tell lies using nothing but factual ingredients. Very difficult, very confusing. Uh, the last one, we'll close with this. He's mastered the art of projection. Um, let me tell you this real quickly. I had a lady that I met with years ago who was raised by a very controlling mother very controlling mother. And my client, very smart lady, I've always thought, I don't really mean this, I've always thought that if she was ever tested formally, she'd probably test out at the Mensa level. I mean, she's that bright. And what my client did was, when she was growing up, is that she used her natural intelligence to figure out what mom's expectations were and meet them before mom ever expressed them. And so consequently, what happened to my client is that she grew up as this marvelous chameleon. And she just had this ability to read people's expectations and just shift herself and, and, and make herself whatever they wanted her to be. Well, um, consequently, she had no enduring, ongoing, integrated sense of self. The short way to say that was that she didn't know who she was. Well, she was raised by controlling mom. She later married, guess what? Controlling spouse. How does that work? 
my role is to be in charge. Your role is to submit and do what I want you to do. So early on, their relationship worked contingent upon her ability to read his expectations and just be whatever he needed. Well, you know, that's a short-term strategy. And sooner or later, they would need to work out something. Here he was over on that side of that equation uh, without the ability to claim responsibility for his negative contributions. So what he would routinely do is he would attribute his negatives to her. So if he flew into a rage, he would lecture her about her anger. And most of the time when it came out of his mouth, it sounded like this. Well, it can't be me, it must be you. And I heard him say that one time in my office. Now notice what he was doing. He was taking his negatives, loading them up into a projector of sorts, projecting those negatives away from himself so that they're now over there on her. So he's now engaged in, in what we call in our field the, the, the defense mechanisms of splitting and projection. Now what happened over on her side of that equation? Those negatives would come across the room, land on that blank screen of hers, that no-self, and she would look down at what was being projected and in effect say, is that me? Or is that you? Or is that me? I think that's me. And she would absorb what was being projected. And most of the time when arguments ended, she thought the negatives were truly attributable to her. And so most marital arguments ended where she'd say, you're right, you're right, it's not you, it is me. Now, as I met with her over time, we had to help her start to pull those things apart and realize, you know, what was her and what was him, but it really messed with her brain. So I'm not telling you anything about today about what to do about this. I'm just saying these are some common uh, vulnerabilities. And we've got a couple of minutes. Questions or comments about this? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, at what point um, would you say that, like, this manipulation kind of manifests into, like, an there's a sense in which it's always abusive. You know, because what they're doing is they're using you to enhance them. And I need you to be a certain way in order for me to be the way that I am. So that's, that's inherently abusive. Now sometimes it, it escalates into uh, violence. And, you know, uh, then the strategy for dealing with that changes because you have to protect yourself and you have to be careful about that. But I think there's an inherent violation that, that takes place anytime this manipulation occurs. Yeah? When there's plausible deniabilities, like what's the best way approach of handling that? Like when you feel like someone, just as you mentioned, it's, you get the feeling like you're being gaslighted. Yeah. And, yeah. and they haven't said anything untrue necessarily, but um, the narrative they've constructed yeah. as propping up maybe poor decisions. Or, um, yeah. uh, I don't think there, I wish there was. I don't think there's a one size fits all to say here's what everybody needs to do in all circumstances because each, each setting has its own variables to it. Now sometimes you can say something direct directly to say, um, call attention to it. If they make use of it, that's a good sign. And what it tells you is maybe they're, they're doing it, don't even know it, but when you point it out, then they become aware of it. Other times, anything that you say is gonna fall on deaf ears. 
And so what you have to do is figure out ways not to play your part in the drama. And when you don't play your part in the drama, what are they going to do? They're going to escalate the drama. And so what I try to get across to people sometimes is if you deal with this the right way, you kind of have to anticipate it's probably going to look worse before it looks better. And, and think about this. These are, these are people who are children in the bodies of adults. If you um, stop a child from throwing a temper tantrum, what do they typically do? They, they throw a bigger tantrum. And then you can say, my parenting methods are ineffective. They're really not. But you kind of have to ride that out for a while and until they start to see my tantrum doesn't accomplish what I want it to. That, that doesn't really answer your question adequately, I, I don't try think. I to call it out, like when I see it. Yeah. I see really forthright yeah. this is what I see, you know, but I yeah. Sometimes what you do is more important than what you say. Yes. You know, so if I know what's going on here, I'm going to purposely not play my obligatory role in the drama, knowing that when I do that, it, they're going to escalate the drama. And the escalation is probably a good sign that what you're doing is effective. Now, they may have to stay in an escalated state for a long time until they stop doing it. So if you're looking for immediate payoff, you're probably not going to get it. But yeah, yes, ma'am. Um, so when you, I've got somebody in my extended family who is like that, and so when yeah. I'm dealing with this person, I feel like I'm handling him. Like I'm yeah. not going to buy into your yeah. crap. I'm just going to be kind and respectful, and I'm not. Yeah. I, and I feel like I'm manipulating him because I have to handle him. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, there's a sense in which you're manipulating the manipulator. Yeah. But. It's not done for sinister purposes. It's done to contain their pathology. So I, I talk to people sometimes, you may have to manage your manager. Um, don't allow what they're doing to be effective. And there's a sense in which you're purposely strategizing how not to play into their dramas. And that might feel like you're being manipulative, but you're really not. It's more of a management strategy than it is a manipulation strategy. But I understand that. There's a great book, some of you already know, called Boundaries by Cloud and Townsend. It's a broad application, including this law, what we're talking about. And your best defense sometimes is having healthy boundaries, being aware of your own vulnerabilities about those boundaries, and equipping yourself for having having allies, people who, who you can talk to about this and have on your side, because when that behavior increases, that yeah. Parenting and dealing with this population, there's a lot of parallels. <laughs> there really is, because we're talking about children and the bodies of adults. There's so yeah. much we can yeah. talk about. We're simply out of yeah. time. Yeah. Um, thanks for coming next week. Jim Cross yeah. will be here.